how many of you have heard this saying before? Jesus loves you. Don't look so weird. I would be surprised if you hadn't, even if you don't go to church often. It's on bumper stickers. It's on billboards. Uh, we, we sing a song about it when we're little kids. What's the song? Jesus loves... <laughs> something, something about the Bible. Yeah, there we go. Uh, we have heard it in Sunday school since we were, you know, old enough to understand English, and even younger in some cases. And I would be willing to bet money that you all have the same verse memorized. Who knows John three sixteen? Go, 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 do it, do it. Yeah, but you remembered the first part. What was the first part? For God so loved the world. Right? We hear about it all the time. How God loves us. God loves the world. And what I want to do is I want to spend some time today digging into that idea of, of how do we, 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 we say it, and to a certain extent we know it, but how do we know that Jesus loves us? How, well, how do we know that Jesus loves us? Okay, but why? No, no, no. Why? Why does he love us? How do we know? Because he died for us. Because he died on the cross for our sins, right? Well, that's true. And and if Jesus was willing to go to the cross to die for your sin for my sin, it stands to reason that there must be some evidence that he gave about how he felt about us before he went to the cross. So, this is our new series with. No! Okay, wait one second. While I'm getting my pro presenter up and running, here we go! New series! Heart! The Savior's Heart for Us. So before we focus on our own heart, let's get at what the heart of Jesus is for us. The Savior's Heart for us. So... I have a story that you will all have in common with me in the future. When I was 16, I went and took my first driver's test to get my license. You aren't there yet, but you will be soon. Well, then don't worry about it. But the driver's test is made up of two parts. Does anybody yet, even at the age of 10, 11, or 12 know what the two parts of that test are? First, you have to take... An exam. There we go. So first we have to take an exam. We have to take an exam. We have to either do, click it on a computer or write it out. We have to prove to the driving test people that we know with our brains the rules of the road, how cars work, what should we do in a specific situation. But then after that exam, which you can't make any mistakes on or maybe even just one, you have to go get in a car with a very grumpy person <laughs> who is judging every single thing you do and telling you what to do and you can't make any mistakes while you drive around showing this person that you don't just know how to drive but that you actually can physically do the thing. See, the driving test people won't just take your word for it. They won't, you can't just go into the DMV and say, I know how to drive. In fact, when I moved to Illinois, I had to take the test again because even though I had a driver's license from Washington State and Texas, Illinois was like, well, we don't really believe them. 
we need you to take a test to prove that you actually know the things that you say you know. Those states don't matter. They're like over here and we're like right next to the capital, yeah. so we know more than them. It's ridiculous, but I had to do it and I had to prove it. So, in the same way, I think we should ask that question, how did Jesus prove that he loved us while he was on earth? Not just going to the cross because honestly, if we don't really understand that Jesus loved us before we go to the cross. We're not going to, we'll have questions. I'll go over questions at the end. No answer. We'll get there. If you do have a question, go ahead and raise your hand. I'd be happy to answer it, but we'll try and keep this moving. So, we want to know, leading up to the cross, because if we don't understand that Jesus loved us before he went to the cross, how would we know that he did it because of love? How would John know to write, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but will have eternal life. Well, that leads us into John. Because, right here, he lays out in John chapter 13, while you're turning to John chapter 13, I'll go ahead and read this one. If you need a Bible, the Bibles are somewhere over there in the plants. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the what? End. End. All right. So, he didn't just love them at when he went to the cross. He loved them before. He loved them after. He loves them even now. And he's not just talking about the disciples. Having loved his own who are in the world, who's he talking about? Is he talking about just about Peter and John and James and all those guys? I don't think so. Who else is he talking about? Yeah, everyone who's his own, who's in the world. So, we should stand up, we should take note. Now, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are primarily concerned with kind of the historical account of Jesus was born this, at this time and it fulfilled this prophecy and this is what he taught, this is what he did, these are the events that happened to him between his birth and when he ascended into heaven. And these accounts were passed around the early church for 30 or more years. They were all over the place. People were memorizing them. People were loving them. People were teaching from them. And the Holy Spirit was using them to grow the church every day. And they are amazing. I highly recommend that you read them. But we are not going to be spending time in them today because we have John. And John decided 30 years or more after these Gospels were written that he was going to write his own. And the question has always been, we've always wondered to a certain extent, why did John wait so long to write his Gospel? Some people think maybe he didn't think for a long time that he needed to, or some people thought that maybe there was a reason later on where he was like, well, I'm going to give my side of the story. But for whatever reason, he wrote this, we have it now, and John is a very different type of gospel story. What do you got? Um, so, if he loves everybody mm -hmm. who is on the earth and living, does that mean he doesn't love the dead people? No. No. Nope. <laughs> but, I, obviously, he loves everyone, but... 
right? Well, he proves he loves even the dead people. Think about True. it. When Lazarus uh, begged at the table, Lazarus, don't know it. When, yeah, that's Well, Lazarus was dead. Lazarus was dead. Jesus didn't stop loving. He was like, well, he's dead, so I'm not going to bother yeah. anymore. No, no, I'm going to call him forth from the dead. If he didn't love the people who are dead, he wouldn't come back at the end of time and raise us all again from the dead if he didn't love them. So, no. And he didn't stop loving Moses and Abraham and David just because they happened before. Because remember, dying God, or dying in God's eyes is like, okay, you just took another step, now you're, now you're into your eternal life. Yep. So, especially for people who've accepted Jesus as their Savior, it's, okay, it's just the next step in life is, okay, now I died, so now I get to move on where I live. So, what we have, and we'll get into that, and we'll, we'll see how Jesus proved it. But John is a very different work of literature than the first three Gospels. Now, I'm going to be clear. John is not a different story than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It tells the same story, but just like how Dylan, you, and Madison might look at an event and tell about it differently... John is telling the same story as Matthew, Mark, Luke, but from a different perspective. He's got his own perspective because he was there for some certain things and, and he was seeing things from a different perspective and being 60 years later, maybe he was beginning to have a different understanding of how all those things worked out and what they, what they were going to. But John is very, very interested in proclaiming that Jesus is not just this awesome guy who lived for a while, died, and then came back from the dead, but that he was and is the son of the living God, that his love was great for us, that it was his love that took him to the cross. And we're going to learn about what this meant in Jesus' life from the Gospel of John. But, but what happens is, oh gosh, why does this keep happening? Oh, there we go. The Gospel of John spends more time than any of the other three Gospels describing Jesus' relationship with the Father and Jesus' relationship with us. He goes through, and you'll see in different parts of John, Jesus spends extended chapters talking about our relationship with Him, about how He feels about us, about how His relationship is with His Father in Heaven, about His relationship with the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's relationship is going to be with us when Jesus leaves. It's all about relationship, and John is telling us that more than any of the other three. And it is amazing, but it leads us to our first question in John chapter 13. What did Jesus do to prove his love for us? Now, I want, I'm hoping one of you will re read from chapter 13, 1 through 11. Who's going to volunteer to step up? I have it up here on a page if you want to read it up here. All right, here we go. I'll do it then. <laughs> now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During the supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back from God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. 
Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my head and my hands. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. And that's John 13, 1 through 11. So, what does this mean? Well, we see uh, that this is not just some random occurrence because right here, the first thing we see is that Jesus knew that his hour had come. He was not surprised. This wasn't some random night where he says, hmm, this seems like a good time for me to teach my disciples something. No, he knew where he was going. This wasn't accidental. And this was the final thing that he wanted to spend time with his friends and his disciples to teach them. And let's not pass over what is going on here. This isn't just that Jesus, some important guy, is washing people's feet. This is the God of the universe. This is the guy, this is God, who created every single one of the 12 disciples that were in that room. He knew them from their mother's womb. He knit them together. He knew every single part of them. The God of the universe was now scrubbing dirt and probably poop off of their feet. Because, and we got, it's funny, but it's real. Because back then they didn't have steel-toed boots, they didn't have sneakers, they didn't have cars, they walked from place to place on the roads, and when they were walking on the roads, there were other things that were walking on the roads. What else was walking on those roads? Donkeys. Donkeys. Llamas. No, not llamas. Sheep. <laughs> Llamas were in South America. Donkeys, sheep, camels, camels horses. These animals were walking on the streets as well, and we all know because we've seen a parade or we've seen a horse walking around with a bucket tied to its butt. What do horses do when they're walking around? They poop wherever they are, wherever they're going. Sheep do it. Your dog does it. Everybody poops. Animals poop wherever, wherever they happen to be at that moment. And it was more than likely that at some point along the way, when they're walking from place to place, they stepped in feces or they brushed up against it or someone kicked some onto their feet. So at the end of the day, it was customary when you sit down for a meal that you have your feet, you wash your feet or somebody washes your feet. And this was obviously a dirty job and it was normally a humiliating task that was left to the lowest servant or the least person in the room. So to have Jesus do this would have been confusing to the disciples and probably would have been embarrassing to them to have this guy, this rabbi that they've been following around thinking is the greatest thing since sliced bread, which hadn't even been invented yet. So the greatest thing before sliced bread and after sliced bread. Exactly. This was, it was unheard of for a rabbi 
to lower himself to this level. He had a status that was very high in the society of that time. And, and this gives us some insight into Peter's response because Peter is amazing. I love Peter. He's one of my favorite people to read. He's one of my favorite people to talk about because to me, he is just the realest guy that I've ever met and I see myself... Exactly. I, I like to think sometimes maybe Peter had a foot-shaped mouth because he put his foot inside of his mouth so much when he was talking. He, that's when you say something and you don't think about what you're saying and you embarrass yourself because you just said something really dumb. So, Peter sees this happening and Peter, Peter's whole character, you see this, you see this, every time you see him do something, he thinks Jesus is the greatest. He, when, when Peter was asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am, what was his response? You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. He knew who Jesus was and he held him in that esteem. And so when Jesus strips off to his underwear and ties a towel around his weight and starts rubbing and scrubbing the poop and dirt off of their feet, Peter is like, this isn't right. Jesus, you're the greatest. Are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus is like, hold up. You don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will. And Peter's like, no, you will not wash my feet. You are Jesus. You're, wa you're not washing my feet. Just like before when Jesus is like, the son of man has to be crucified. And Peter's like, that will never, ever happen. I will never, ever leave you. I will never, ever, ever do anything. You are so great. And, Peter, and Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. You will deny me three times. You don't understand what's going on. Do you see what I'm talking about, Peter? He thinks it. He says it. This is who Peter thinks. He thinks Jesus can't be doing this because he's too important. But Jesus is saying to him, if you don't let me do this, if you don't let me serve you and wash and scrub your feet, how will you ever accept what I am about to do tomorrow? Because look what he says. If I don't wash you, you have no share in me. What do we do when somebody proclaims Jesus as their Savior? They go up there, they get into a pool of water, and what happens to them? They get baptized. There's a symbolism in that of being dying and raising from the dead again, of being washed clean. We talk about being white as snow when Jesus cleans us because of his sacrifice. And he's connecting, scrubbing the feet to what he's about to do on the cross. If I don't clean you, Peter, you have no part of me. If I don't cleanse you of your sin, you have no part of me. And if you won't even accept me serving you and washing your feet, how will you ever accept what I'm about to do for you tomorrow? So, Peter, being the very intelligent person that he is, takes this the completely wrong way. Oh, well, if Jesus wants to do this for me and I want to be with Jesus, well then washing feet must be the greatest thing that will ever be done. And it was the worst thing before, but now because Jesus is doing it, Scrubbing feet from poop is now the best thing that you can do. So don't just wash my feet, Jesus. Wash my head and my hands only. I want to be the most special person because you are going to scrub every part of me. Because now I know, because you're doing it, that it must be the great thing to do. And Jesus, so much patience. with patience that is beyond belief, says, this isn't what I'm trying to do here. You just let me wash your feet. <laughs> Will you let me wash your feet? <laughs> Jesus corrects him. 
Peter misses the point because he was trying to turn this example of Jesus' humility into a big, important act. And I, I imagine this missing the point, this relationship there. How many of you have ever seen Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the first one? Right? Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi is an old Jedi master and he has great power and great wisdom. And Luke is, is a smart boy. I mean, he flies T-16s and he bullseyes womp rats and he understands that the Force is kind of an unseen thing and that he can block blasters with it and do all of that stuff, but he doesn't really get the ways of the Jedi by the time they get to the Death Star. And it isn't until he watches Obi-Wan demonstrate his power in his duel with, with Darth Vader, right? What does he do? He, he sees Luke and he decides to teach him one more lesson, right? He does what? Does he kill Darth Vader? No, he turns off his lightsaber and he surrenders and allows Darth Vader to seemingly cut him down because he understands this isn't the end. And he does that to teach Luke that death is not the end when you are a Jedi, right? And it's from that that Luke starts to understand that the Force is a bigger thing than he thought it was. And... Kind of like this, Jesus is demonstrating something more important here in washing feet. He's not saying that this is the greatest thing in the whole world. It's an act of service. It's not some honorable and glorious thing that we should be fighting with one another to be the guy to do when we sit down. But rather, he is teaching something about his heart for us and giving a demonstration of this quality that we should want to have and pursue, which is humility. And this leads to the main point, the answer to the question of, of how do I know that Jesus loves me? God humbled himself, write this down, God humbled himself to become our servant. It wasn't about turning this act of service into the most high thing to do, but it was in making himself low that he demonstrated his love for us. His love is demonstrated in his humility. God humbled himself. He made himself a servant. And in doing this, he demonstrated his love for us in showing humility. Now, when you think about God, when you think about Jesus, this should be something that amazes you. This, this thing that he did right here. Not, not even We're not even getting to the cross yet because we could talk for years and our whole life about the cross. But this act of washing feet should be just amazing. That two seemingly opposite things. God, poop scrubber, exist perfectly in this one man, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we dwell on this for a second. God loves you so much that he humbled himself and made himself low, not just to wash your feet, but God took on human flesh. He humbled himself to take on our weaknesses. He got hungry. He went through growing pains. He was thirsty. He, he was without sleep from time to time, not even getting to the point of the stuff that he had to go through after this meal. But he humbled himself to take that on, not because it only glorified him, but because of his love for you. He did this. So what's the meaning? What's the meaning of God being our servant? Well, we find out in this next portion, because handily enough, the Bible puts a nice title card over it saying, the meaning of the foot washing. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. 
He said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right to do so, for I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus is directly answering this question, what is the meaning of God being our servant? It's not about being the greatest. It's about being humble. God humbles himself to be a servant. And when God is humbling himself to be a servant, there is no possible way that we should ever think that we are too good to humble ourselves. He goes further to say that a humble servant attitude should be the marker, the defining characteristic of being Jesus' disciple. Right here. If you know these things, bless you, if you do them, you ought to wash one another's feet. If you love me as I've loved you, you should do these things. Think about sports, right? Not always, maybe always, we play soccer, we had a karate in the last one, cheerleading. Every single one of these activities, if you are doing them, has one person who's telling you what to do. Who's that person? The coach. The coach. But we know this. The coach's job is not just to tell you what to do. What else does the coach do? teaches you what? What to do, right? But not, not just by using his, his or her words. What are they doing? They show you, right? You're talk, sitting over there on the floor showing how to do your, sitting on your bottom and trying to swirl your legs around, which is really hard. Did your coach or one of the, the assistant coaches or somebody who's a teacher show you how to do it first? Yeah. So you weren't just saying, well, you want to sit on the ground and spin around and so... So you would end up spinning around in circles, but no, they got down and they showed you how to do it. I remember when I played soccer when I was in fifth grade, the coach, the coach was an older guy and maybe not as athletic as he once was in a younger time, but he still coached us by showing us how to kick the ball, where to put our feet, what part of the foot we should strike the ball with, depending on how we wanted the ball to go. What part of your head should you use to head the ball? How should you throw it? He wasn't just telling us how to do it, but he showed us how to do it. Question? Sort of. Wait, let's hold comments until the end, and we'll get a chance to talk about it in our small group time, okay? I promise. This is kind of a small group. There's three of us. Yes. We're going to have a discussion afterwards, and there will be a time to do that. So... When, thinking about the coaching, when we're reading this story about Jesus demonstrating this to the disciples, he's not just doing it for the disciples, but he's doing it, we saw at the beginning, having loved his own who are in the world, who are they? Just the disciples? Or all of us? Which one of us? All of us, that's right. So, he is demonstrating something to the disciples and he's demonstrating something to you and I. He's inviting you not just to marvel at how awesome and humble Jesus is, but he is 
telling you he doesn't want you to be a spectator, right? We talk about cheerleading. We talk about soccer. We talk about pretty much any sport. They only exist because people want to watch them happening. Those are called spectators. The spectators aren't playing soccer. The spectators aren't cheerleading. The spectators aren't doing karate. They're just watching it being done and being entertained by it. And Jesus does not want that to be the quality of your life following him, just watching what Jesus does. But he wants you to be a player. He wants you to be on the field. He wants you to be engaged with it and doing it. And he's showing you and coaching you on how it looks and how it should be done. So what does this mean for us? Well, he ends it a little bit later on in the chapter and he says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus set the example not only in washing the disciples' feet, but like we said, the next day, he showed why he was washing their feet by going to the cross and suffering the penalty for sin, yours, mine, everybody's. He humbled himself to the very lowest place and died for us. But in raising from the dead, he offers a new life to everyone who believes in him. And by faith, the Holy Spirit will cultivate in you. That's like a farming term, right? When we cultivate, we're growing something out of the ground. When we trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit cultivates in us, grows in us the same Christ-like attitude of humility. A.K.A. you can't do it on your own. Only by the power of the Holy Spirit will you begin to look like Jesus in this way and have humility. But it doesn't stop there. Because look, he's not just talking about you, he's talking about others. Humility is a powerful tool to spread the gospel to an unbelieving world. Because the quality of your love says to everyone who you belong to. All people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have what? Love. For? Love for one another. So who is the one another he's talking about here? We've got three different groups of people. We've got you. That's you. We've got one another. And we've got all people. So one another isn't all people. Who is it? Him. Him. It's true. And her. And her. Everybody and in this room. Everybody in this room. And not only in this room, but where? In this building. And not only in this building, but everyone who calls Jesus Lord and Savior around the world, the church, the body of Christ. The way that we love one another, the way that we wash one another's feet in humility tells all people, that's the people that don't believe in Jesus, that we belong to Jesus and that Jesus is different. Something's going on. When you start when you start loving one another with this humility, it starts to tell people the gospel in some small way. Now, I don't know about you. When I read the Great Commandment and I see that Jesus' expectation of me is to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them all the things that I have commanded you, I'm a little bit intimidated by that. That's a big 
job and I don't know how I'm going to do it. But here, in this chapter, in John 13, we see the starting point of how we can do this. So this week, what I want you to do is not to go to the ends of the earth and preach the gospel and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them all that he has commanded you. I want you to love one another. The people who call Jesus Lord and Savior, the people in this room, the people in this church, we got a picnic tonight, the people at that yeah. picnic, love them well and in a way that is humble, like this foot-washing way. What will that look like? What does that look like? What does humility look like in loving the people of this church?